Okay, hi, hello everyone. This is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you uh, from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada. We're studying Morena Vuchim for webyeshiva.org. Uh, I debated whether or not we should have a, a shiur today because of the tragic situation going on in Israel today. Um, and I felt that perhaps our Torah study today and our help, hopefully our, we're going to try to understand one of God's ways um, should act as a zuchut, should act as a merit for our brethren in Israel. Um, and for those who are injured, who are captives, and who could use uh, heavenly aid at this time, we hope that uh, knowing that our hearts are with you and that our Torah study is dedicated uh, to you should should be of some kind of help. So we're going to uh, start today, section three, chapter 17. This is a very important chapter uh, in trying to uh, understand the Rambam's view on divine providence, which is a really a major issue. Um, we had finished chapter 16 before the beginning of the Chagim of the holidays, um, and we had looked at divine knowledge. And the Rambam had set down emphatically that he rejects any kind of theology that was circulating at his time that takes away any kind of omniscience from God. God is completely omniscient, all-knowing, but that does not necessarily equate to God being providential of every single thing that he knows. And the word providence, of course, means to be in control of and to guide and to um, give particular attention. We call it in Hebrew hashkacha pratit, um, divine intervention on a very particularistic level. And so uh, this is a, it's a very um, uh, important topic for the Rambam to cover because there are so many different opinions regarding this issue, especially if a person is a theist, if he believes in God and one sees the, the seeming randomness of the world around us, how do we make sense of the fact that God seems to be a benevolent God according to our tradition and everything that we know about God, and yet there seems to be so much random chaos that results in tragedy for different components of creation. So I'm going to, um, uh, we won't be able to finish the entire chapter today. We, we may even need three uh, sections for this chapter. We'll see whether we can cover it in two or three sections. Um, I'm going to share my screen with you, which has an outline of what we're going to be discussing today. And uh, so hopefully you're able to see that now. Um, so let's talk about the five, what the Rambam calls ancient. He says all of them are ancient. These different approaches to divine providence of Hashkacha Pratit, um, I'm going to discuss these now. Uh, uh, opinion number one is that there is no divine providence whatsoever, and everything occurs by chance. Now, whether or not God exists or not is not relevant to this discussion. You could even have a God that exists, but he is a God that is completely unaware and is not mindful or watchful of what is going on in this world. This is the opinion of Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, which is why those in Israel who believe as such are called apikores, epicurus, okay? About such people, and such people existed even in the times of the prophet, even among the Jewish people, there were people who believed that God is not providential. 
And therefore, Ezekiel said about them in chapter 33, the that many people of your own nation, God say, Lo Hashem, that the way of God is not correct or is not uh, fit. But it is their way that is not fit. And, and the Rambam reads into this that God is not watching over what's going on. Now, he says that Aristotle has already refuted this view. The Rambam does not go into any detail in explaining how Aristotle had already refuted this because he had discussed this back in section two of the guide. Um, and we'll just read just a couple of snippets. The first one from chapter 13 of section two in discussing the three theories of the origins of the universe, the Rambam had said, this is a full account of the opinions of those who consider that the existence of God, the first cause of the universe, has been established by proof. Now, once you believe in God, so there are three approaches to cosmogony or how God brings about the all of existence. We have the Aristotelian view, the Platonic view, and the Judaic view. But it would be quite useless to mention the opinions of those who do not recognize the existence of God, but believe that the existing state of things is the result of accidental combination and separation of the elements, and that the universe has no ruler or governor, such as the theory of Epicurus and his school, and similar philosophers as stated by Alexander of Aphrodisius. It would be superfluous to repeat their views since the existence of God has been demonstrated while their theory is built upon a basis proved to be untenable. So the Rambam sets out in chapter 13 to state that Epicurus didn't believe in God at all. And therefore, um, everything that occurs is just by random, by chance. Bear that in mind. Now, in later on in chapter 20 of section 2, the Rambam had said, according to Aristotle, none of the products of nature are due to chance. It's not a random or chaotic or by chance. His proof is this, that which is due to chance does not reappear constantly nor frequently, but all products of nature reappear either constantly or at least frequently. Now, this is a very important point that is debated even to this day, and I want us to be aware of the argument. The fact that there is order in the world, the fact that entropy does not um, take over over the course of time and things do not disintegrate and fall apart, but rather follow a pattern of organization, is in itself, for the Rambam and for Aristotle, a proof that there must exist some mover or some maintainer of existence that makes sure that the regular patterns of order and of complexity maintain. The heavens with all that they contain are constant. They never change, as has been explained, neither as regards their essence nor as regards their place. But in the sublunary world, we find both things which are constant and things which reappear frequently, though not constantly. That is to say, for example, the heat of fire and the downward tendency of the stone are constant properties, while the form and life of the individuals in each, in each species are the same in most cases. Meaning, yes, you have individuations of existence. You have animals, human beings, plants, individual things that are by and large conforming to a particular pattern. So a species of animal, for example, will always have four legs with rare exceptions. Sometimes there are mutations, 
but the general rule is the prevailing sort of the vast majority of that species conforms to some kind of genetic model. All this is clear. If the parts of the universe are not accidental, how can the whole universe be considered as the result of chance? Therefore, the existence of the universe is not due to chance. If even the components are not by chance, because you see a very sophisticated ordering of things, then certainly the entire universe cannot be by chance. So just a couple of comments to this. Um, and even though the Rambam does not devote a lot of time about this in his chapter, I do want to make mention of a couple of things. First of all, what you see from here is that the Rambam feels that this opinion, this opinion of Epicurus, does not really need to um, be addressed with any to any great extent. And the reason is because it's been widely established by just about every philosopher of his time that there is some kind of deity that maintains the order and the status, the, the continuing status of existence so that, not, so that things don't just fall apart spontaneously. This for the Rambam is the biggest proof that there must be some deity that is in charge of on some level, some, some level of providence. That's the opinion of Aristotle, that's the opinion of the Mutakalimun philosophers of the Rambam's time, and certainly that's the opinion of the religious community of the Rambam's time. Now, I want to note that that is not the backdrop of social thought. The, the milieu of philosophy today has completely changed. If anything, religion is on the retreat um, from an onslaught of philosophical and scientific views that do subscribe to Epicurus. And great effort has been made to try and dismantle this argument that the Rambam is putting forward in the name of Aristotle. Aristotle's argument has been reiterated by many philosophers through the ages. Newton, Descartes, and William Paley all describe what they call the proof by teleology, that there must be some kind of sentience that is maintaining order in the universe. It's sometimes called the watchmaker analogy, meaning that if you find a watch on the street, there is no, it, it would not be logical to think that all of a sudden pieces of metal flew together by chance and formed a watch. If there's a watch that you find on the street, then you would automatically conclude that someone, some being, made the watch. Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection challenged the watchmaker argument in the 19th century, and it was really the first major blow to this whole way of thinking that is put forward by Aristotle. However, it must be emphasized that it only partially challenged the idea of this watchmaker uh, uh, theory or what we now call the intelligent design. Since natural selection doesn't logically lead to the evolutions of organisms from simplicity to complexity, and this is a, a something that is continues to be debated today, how is it that things evolve from simple constructs into more complex constructs. That doesn't seem to fit not, neither scientifically nor philosophically to the way that we normally see is that things as they age and as they are, are allowed to go on their own recognizance tend to deteriorate into more simple 
um, structures instead of things coalescing into more complex structures if these things are happening on their own. Uh, what we call people today, this is the modern term, they call themselves naturalists, that everything that exists came into exist existence on, it own, on its own without the help of a god. This is this was the belief of Stephen Hawking. This is the belief of uh, Sean Carroll in his book, The Big Picture, which is a major bestseller today. Yuval Harari, people like that. They believe that everything came into being like chance, and they are vigorously putting forth arguments to support this belief. I, I have to tell you, not that I, I wouldn't at all consider myself an expert in this area, because the science, the science is quite complex. But I do find, based on my own understanding, my own limited understanding, that many of these arguments are contrived. And certainly, the truly intellectually honest scientists are forced to acknowledge that they don't have all of the answers yet. They have created a model where they feel that this model will work without a god, but there are still many things that are, are unanswered, the most important of which is uh, a model whereby simple constructs evolve on their own by random uh, into more complex structures and that complexity is maintained throughout. So the Rambam's argument quoting Aristotle is still sound even to this day, at least the, you know, despite the onslaught uh, of those who would subscribe to Epicurus. So because the Rambam is quite dismissive of this opinion and we're not really going to see it revisited in, in the later texts, We'll go on to opinion number two. Opinion number two is Aristotle's view that providence, providence extends to only certain components of creation. Now, the, here the Rambam lays down Aristotle's view that everything is linked to the level of permanence that it has within existence. The more permanent and unchanging a component of existence is, the more it is subject to providence. Because the celestial spheres in heaven are unchanging, they are subject to direct divine providence. But because the components of the terrestrial realm are subject to birth, death, and change, they are not subject to providence. And therefore, Aristotle believed that anything that exists in our terrestrial existence, animals, uh, 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 flowers, human, and including human beings, None of us, because of the fact that we are subject to change, we are constantly in a state of flux, we are brought into this world, we grow and age over the course of a lifetime, and then we die, and then there are new uh, beings that are born and go through that same process, but there is no sense of permanence of any individual component of this terrestrial realm, and therefore God's providence only extends to things which are unchanging and permanent. Because we are constantly in change and we are impermanent, God's providence does not extend to, that, to those beings such as ourselves in this terrestrial realm. The only providence that does exist in the terrestrial realm is the maintenance of species in general. So if God wants to make sure that elephants will continue existing, uh, the, uh, the, this prime mover, as Aristotle called God, will make sure that elephants continue the procreating by making sure that the species of elephants constantly has reproductive organs and is able to fend for itself, since that is the only unchanging aspect of the physical realm, that the physical realm has elephants. 
So in that's the thing that's unchanging, and that's the only thing that God maintains. That specific elephant in Western Africa, uh, you know, which has the small ears and the long tail, that particular elephant God has no knowledge of and God is not maintaining. Individual components of species do have a certain kind of providence and that each individual is endowed with characteristic of growth, locomotion, and or intellect, depending upon the species, which causes it to behave like the other members of its species. So we say, according to Aristotle, that every elephant, because of its elephantine nature, is subject to that type of providence that it was created with elephant-like features. But the specific actions and fate of the individuals of a species they occur by chance, we're just quoting now from the text, and do not, according to Aristotle, come about through the governance or ordering of one who governs or orders. So therefore, the Rambam writes that when a strong wind blows, it may cause many things to occur. Certain leaves of certain trees will fall, stones will fall from a particular wall, certain plants will be covered by mud, and waves will be whipped up in the ocean that may cause boats to capsize and individual humans will lose their lives through natural disasters. But according to Aristotle, there is no difference between the fall of the leaf and the fall of the stone on the one hand, or the drowning of the excellent and superior men that were on board of the ship on the other. Now, just two brief points. Number one, note that the Rambam does not at all engage in the discussion of how human initiative can cause a change of fate to individual human beings. If someone decides to be malevolent and kill or harm another person, that is not being addressed here in the Rambam's depiction of Aristotle. How does one person's free will ability affect someone else? It would seem as if Aristotle is saying that no human being, no human individual organism, no individual organism, period, is subject to any kind of divine protection or providence. And that for the Rambam is very problematic. It's not just problematic theologically and philosophically, but the fact that he chose this example of the drowning of an excellent superior human being due to a shipwreck uh, is very personal for the Rambam. And this is something that's pointed out by some of the commentaries. You know, the Rambam's brother David died in a shipwreck, as the Rambam described in a letter. We'll just read a few lines of it. The worst disaster that struck me of late, worse than anything I had ever experienced from the time I was born until this day, was the demise of that upright man, may the memory of the righteous be a blessing, who drowned in the Indian Ocean while in possession of much money belonging to me, to him, and to others, leaving a young daughter and his widow in my care. For about a year from the day the evil tidings reached me, I remained prostrate in bed with a severe inflammation, fever, and mental confusion, and nearly perished. From then until this day, that's about eight years ago, when he says my brother passed away, I have been in a state of disconsolate mourning. How can I be consoled? For he was my son. It was his younger brother. He grew up upon my knees. He was my brother, my pupil. It was he who did business in the marketplace, earning a livelihood, while I dwelled in security. He had a ready grasp of Talmud and a superb mastery of grammar. My only joy was to see him, and he quotes from Isaiah, the sun has set on all joy. So it's important to note that this is very personal for the Rambam as well. 
we're not at all suggesting that the Rambam's rejection of the Aristotelian view of providence is in any way colored or jaundiced by his own personal experience. Because as he's going to say at the end of this chapter, chapter 17, I'm presenting to you my theology based on what I see in the biblical text. And we're gonna, we're, we won't get to that today, but we will get to that eventually. But it is important to note, and I think it's, it's very poignant to note, that the specific example that the Rambam chose is based upon his own life experience. But to continue along the Aristotelian view, not only does Aristotle believe that providence does not extend to individuals, it is impossible for this to be so based on Aristotle's belief in the eternality of the universe. Because things exist eternally, as stated in, in section 2, chapter 13, since God is eternal and unchanging, it is impossible for his will or providence to adhere to things which change. God is the ultimate unchanging being, and that was Aristotle's whole argument as to why the universe must be eternal. Because God does not change, he cannot all of a sudden spontaneously create something which would represent a change in his existence and in his volition. And as such, just as God does not create, but rather the universe has existed eternally, according to Aristotle, God does not in any way associate himself with things that are subject to change. The only things to, to which God's volition adheres are the unchanging celestial spheres, which have, according to Aristotle, existed eternally, and the universals of our terrestrial existence, not the individuals. The Rambam says this is not a tenable theology for a Jew to believe. This is not the Torah view. And what this is one of, again, the few instances where he disagrees with Aristotle. And about a person who subscribes to this opinion, the prophet said, and again in Ezekiel, but here from chapter 9, ki amru azav Hashem because they say that God has forsaken the earth, ve'ein Hashem ro'eh, and God does not see. So um, effectively, it is as unacceptable as Epicurus's theology, because in both situations, either because there's no God, or because there is a God, but who is not providential, and mindful of things that are going on with changing beings such as ourselves, that is not a tenable theology for a Jew, because one of the cornerstones of our faith is hashkacha pratit, is divine providence. Let's go to opinion number three. We're going now min ha-katzeh, el ha-katzeh, from one extreme to another. The one, the one extreme that we just saw is that there's no divine providence for any terrestrial beings whatsoever. Uh, certainly not the individual terrestrial beings. And now we go to the opposite extreme, where divine providence is everywhere and in every single component of existence. Everything is by divine providence, according to this opinion. And this is the opinion of a certain group of mutakalimu known as the Asherites or the Asharia. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in identifying this particular uh, sect of uh, Islamic scholars. Uh, we have I have a link here for from Wikipedia if you want to see the the encyclopedia entry about the Asherites. Um, but suffice it to say that they sought to find God everywhere because they wished to elevate and exalt the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. According to this opinion, there is no difference between the falling of a leaf and the drowning of a human being. Everything is ordained and orchestrated by God, and you're welcome to look back on in section 1, chapter 73, 
the sixth premise of the Mutakalimun, where they express this. In addition to suggesting that all creatures are on the same level vis-a-vis -vis providence, this also essentially removes the idea of free will from man, since everything is done by divine decree. We spent a lot of time discussing this when we looked at the, the um, beliefs of the Mutakalimun at the end of section one of the guide. Remember, one of the analogies that the Rambam uh, creates is that God is constantly creating and recreating. There's a constant maintenance of the universe through a constant recreation at every single instant of existence. Um, and as such, even though human beings seem to be moving of their own volition and of, on their own power, really every time I lift up my finger, it's really God creating a new hand, a new finger, and a new me that allows me to be able to do that. And that, in essence, taken to its furthermost logical conclusion, indicates that man is an automaton, is a puppet on a string, and is being constantly controlled, just like everything else in the universe is created by God. There is nothing in existence that therefore is in the realm of possible. Either something must necessarily exist or be, or something necessarily cannot exist or be. The fact that a man named Zayed, for example, is standing right now, or that another man named Umar is coming towards me right now, these are absolutely necessary based on God's wisdom. Man, the, the idea of free will, that people think that they can choose freely of turning right or left, is merely an illusion. What follows from this doctrine is that there is no point for religious commandments since man has no choice but to do the things he does. The Rambam is not the only uh, Jewish critic of this ideology. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, in the fifth section of the Kuzari, lambasts this kind of ideology as well because it completely removes free will. Similarly, it makes no sense for man to be rewarded for the good he does or to be punished for the bad. Why? Because I have no choice. I am merely a puppet on a string. How? Sh why should I get heaven for being righteous if God forces me to be righteous? Why should I go to purgatory for doing evil if God forces me to do so? It also turns out that since everything is preordained, there appears to be no purpose to existence, right? Because if if why then did God bother to bring everything into existence if God is constantly moving and maintaining everything and causing everything to, to move the way it is? It, it's almost as if there doesn't seem to be any purpose to existence. If you were to say that beings have the ability to live their lives as they wish, then I could certainly understand why God brings existence into existence to allow people the opportunity to choose to, uh, to better themselves or to worsen their condition. But if everything is controlled, then what is ultimately the purpose? They utilize this doctrine to explain the existence of evil. If they see a person born, God forbid, with congenital defects, they simply say it is God's will. If they see a righteous person being tortured, it is similarly God's will, since everything was preordained and God may do as he pleases. That's a typo without questioning. And, and so according to the Asharia, um, you can't even bother questioning why God does what he does because everything is by divine uh, decree. There is no wiggle room for anything to occur and to transpire without God being directly in control of moving all of the pieces on the chessboard. And as a result, uh, we can't even ask the question of why 
Well, what do you mean why? It's God's will. God is maintaining everything and is moving everything the way it's supposed to be. So that's just God's will. That's opinion number three. And the Rambam will similarly reject that opinion as being completely untenable. Now we have opinion number four. Now, before we get to opinion number four, which is from another group of Mutakalimun, I will point out that the Rambam is going to present us with five opinions total. And he's going to tell us that the fifth opinion is the opinion of the Torah. And then he himself is going to modify the way that that opinion has to be understood. But understand that there are five, what he calls ancient opinions, one of them being the opinion of the Torah. But number four is very similar to the opinion of the Torah. And for some readers, it may be difficult to distinguish properly between opinion number four and opinion number five. So let's look at it very carefully and let's see what the Rambam says. Opinion number four is that God's providence extends to all things, but man nonetheless possesses free will. This is the opinion of a group of mutakalim known as the Mutazilites or the Mutazila. Um, and again, again, the history of the Mutazilites and what they stood for and why they maintained what they maintained within Islamic faith is not necessary for us to go into right now. But according to this opinion, man does maintain free will. Man gets to choose whether to turn right or to turn left, to do good or to do evil, which is why religious commandments are relevant in that man faces reward and punishment for his free-willed behavior. At the same, at the same time, God is incapable of injustice and never punishes someone who is good. So if, a person, if you ever see someone who is suffering, it must be that that person is deserving of that suffering for something that we are not aware of. That's the opinion of the, of the Mutazilites. Man's free will is limited by the way he was created. And again, we go back to um, the fact that the, the Mutakalimun had established that every human being is born with certain tendencies. And those tendencies certainly uh, uh, cause a person to make to move in the direction of certain choices that they make in their life. But at the same time, at, at every juncture where good and evil is a prospect, man can ultimately choose. God's and now and here's where we would probably say that this is one of the areas of digression that the Rambam will take exception to. God's providence does not just extend to human beings, but ex extends to in individual leaves and ants. Every time a leaf falls in the forest, it is ordained to fall by God, that particular leaf, at that particular moment. And the same thing is true with individual ants that are part of an entire group of ants. Every single ant is, is categorized, is inventoried by God, and is maintained to, so that God determines when each individual ant will come into existence and when each individual ant shall die. So <clears throat> the Rambam says, I have some difficulty with this position. First of all, what do you do with the fact that people are born with congenital defects? How can you say that people suffer in life because they deserve it? How then can a baby be brought into the world with constant pain because of a congenital defect when the, clearly that individual has done nothing wrong. They claim that because God is completely providential and incapable of justice, it must be 
that this defect is the best possible thing for that particular individual. It is not a punishment. They acknowledge that it's not a punishment, but it is God's will that the very best thing for that individual component of creation, that, that individual human being or animal should be born with that particular defect because for that organism's purpose to be fulfilled, it needs to be in some way defective physically or, or mentally. Similarly, when a righteous man perishes before his time, they claim that this was the best possible outcome for that person and that his share in the next world is greater. Now, of course, you would look at this and you would say, is there anything objectionable from a Judaic standpoint to the view of the Mutakalimun? They say that God is, God is never unjust. Everyone has free will. People are born with certain predispositions but possess free will nonetheless. God's providence extends to every single component of creation all the way down to the leaves and the ants, which seems to be borne out by scripture in the book of Job, which we'll get to towards the end of the chapter. And of course, if something, if you see someone suffering in life, it's either a punishment or in cases where it can't be a punishment, it is the best possible scenario for that individual organism. So it seems like the Mutakalimun, uh, the Mutazalite Mutakalimun seem to be somewhat acceptable based on things that we may know about Jewish theology. But he says, this argument extends even to members of the animal kingdom, so that if a particular animal is killed, they argue that its share in the next world is better because of it. The same is true for a bug or a mouse that is eaten by a cat. And here's where you may start to say to yourself, you may start to squint a little bit and say, mm, I'm not so sure about that. Do all dogs go to heaven? Does the ant that is squashed by my foot uh, uh, experience some kind of afterlife experience sounds almost like Eastern religion in the sense that every single living creature, even the plants, are all on the same level. So that's where you may feel that there's something divergent here, but let's keep an open mind. But certainly the Mutazilite view sounds something a little bit similar to Judaism, now let's go to what the Rambam calls the ancient Jewish view. Each of the latter three opinions should not be blamed for their doctrine, for every one of them was impelled by strong necessity to say what he did. And what the Rambam's trying to point out is, whether you subscribe to Aristotle, to the Asherite, or to the Mutazilite view, the, the people who came up with these conclusions about divine providence did so because they were truly truth seekers trying to understand God's ways in the world. They were impelled by necessity to say what they did. Aristotle based his doctrine and observation of what exists, and he came up with the conclusion that God's providence only extends to those things that are permanent and unchanging. The Asherites sought to ascribe to God omniscience of everything and wished to avoid ascribing ignorance of anything to God. And the Mutazilites sought to A, avoid ascribing any injustice to God, B, they sought to explain why the infliction of pain to an innocent, which seems unjust, is really not. And to see, provide purpose for divinely ordained laws that are meaningless once you remove free will. So therefore, <clears throat> they believe that human beings possess free will, but at the same time believe that God controls the destiny of everything down to the smallest ant. Thus, each party's objective was noble, but they were forced to maintain contradictions and logical incongruities within their respective doctrines. 
And now we're going to look just at the last thing for today, which is the, the view of our Torah, at least the way it's been understood up until uh, you get to me, says the Rambam, where I'm going to refine everything. We will look at, A, the literal statements made by our prophets, B, the statements of our sages, as well as C, what is believed by some of our modern-day scholars. Later, I, the Rambam, will share how I believe the Torah statements should be interpreted. And therefore, the Rambam lays down what he is really consistent in every one of his writings, that free will is a cornerstone of our faith. Nothing new within man needs to be created to allow him this free will. Man was deliberately created with this function. Similarly, even animals were created with the freedom to move as they please, but animals were created with instincts to do what they do. Thank God no one among our faith disputes this idea of free will. And it's quite interesting because if you study some Ishbit's uh, Hasidist philosophy, it's, I'm not so sure that the Rambam's statement that no one among our faith disputes the idea of free will is uh, can, can necessarily hold water in every single discussion. But nonetheless, it is also a cornerstone of our faith that there is absolutely no injustice in God, just like the Mutazilites. Anything that occurs to either an individual or community from the smallest to the greatest thing is also ordained by God justly. Even if a person jabs himself with a thorn, that too is by divine decree. And this is based on the Talmudic teaching that appears in the Talmud. My dichtiv odecha Hashem ki anafta bi yeshuv Right, what does the scripture mean when it says that I will give thanks to you, God, even when you are angry at me, because you will uh, be restored from your anger and you will comfort me? Two people go uh, take a business trip. One of them stubs his toe and gets a splinter, and as a result, he's unable to go onto the ship because he needs medical attention, and he curses his fate because now he's going to miss the ship that's going to take him on this business trip. But then later he hears that the ship that he was supposed to embark upon sank, and then therefore he gives thanks to God. Therefore, what I thought was your anger, God, turns out to be my greatest source of comfort. Once again, you see a reference that the Rambam makes to a shipwreck. If only, you can imagine the Rambam saying, if only my brother had not been on that ship, if only he would have stubbed his toe, cursed his fate, and not gotten on that ship, he would still be with me today. Every person receives his just dessert according to classic Jewish theology. Just that we do not understand how each thing that a person receives is commensurate to what he deserves. And thus we say in uh, Deuteronomy, tamim palo, and this is also a scripture that we recite at a funeral, we say that God is the rock, his, all of his ways are pure, mishpat, and everything is just. He is a, a faithful God. There is no perversity that exists within him. He is, he is just and upright, which is, of course, a very, very difficult thing to affirm, especially when we are amidst tragedy uh, that we are experiencing today. But the Rambam wants to point out to us that this is classic Jewish theology. And that's why we affirm that even in the most painful times of our lives when we are experiencing tragedy and death. But that is what the Rambam says is the view of our Torah. Man has free will, 
there is absolute providence to human beings that nothing happens to a person without God ordaining it, even if it's just stubbing their toe. Um, and it sounds very much like the mutazolites. So we'll have to see what the difference is. To summarize, there are multiple approaches as to why things happen to individual human beings. For Aristotle, it is purely random by chance because providence does not extend to the changing beings of our terrestrial world. For the Asherites, it is God's will without any need to explain this will, and it would be audacious for an Asherite to try and uh, hazard a guess as to why God does the things he does. For the Mutazilites, it is divine wisdom. God's wisdom deems it best for certain people to suffer and others to prosper, and those who suffer in this life do so in order to have more prosperity in the next. This justice extends even to ants. So the Rambam points out in, in summarizing the Mutazilite view that there are two things that perhaps we would sort of depart from. Number one, this overemphasis on the afterlife being the ultimate equalizer of any injustice. If you see injustice in this world, say the Mutazilites, don't worry. It's because their life in the afterlife is where the, the main arena for true recompense is. And the other point of objection that perhaps we'll see in the Rambam is that does divine providence apply to even small the smallest of creatures like the ants? For us Jew, it is true that every person receives his just desserts. Thus our sages say, Ein mita below chet, yisurin below avon. It is impossible for there to be death without sin. It is impossible for there to be suffering without uh, uh, without iniquity. The Mishnah teaches, Bamidasha adam modeid, bamodidin lo that whatever a person does in his life, he is he is compensated in kind. God provides, and, and that's uh, in Mishnah Sota, describing what the, the procedure, the protocols that happened to a Sota, an adulterous woman. God provides recompense to anyone who does good and avoids evil, even if the particular act in question is not commanded by the Torah, but is rather known to be good based on human instinct to reject wrong and injustice. In other words, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu Mekapeach Kol God does not deny the reward for any creature, Jew, Gentile, or animal, who acts righteously and justly, even when they're not commanded to do so. They also stated that Kol Mishu Hu Omer SheHakadosh Baruch Hu Vatran Hu Yitvaterun Bnei Me'ohe that anyone who thinks that God is a forgiving God and will overlook certain things, then may his innards be forgiven or overlooked and be overturned. And what that means is it's almost like a pronouncement of a curse on that person. But God rather is a patient God. If God sees someone performing something that is sinful, God will not punish the individual right, right away with a bolt of lightning, but will rather allow that person to repent, but ultimately God will collect his due. Regarding a good deed that is rewarded even without being commanded, they say, that even though a person who is commanded it gets a higher reward, but even a being who is not commanded to do a virtuous deed but ends up doing it will still be rewarded as well. And this is very important for the Rambam because, again, he's a universalist who believes that even non-Jews and even potentially animals who act, you know, the St. Bernard who, who rescues someone from the avalanche will also be rewarded in some way. There is an additional teaching from our sages that does not occur in, script, in scripture, that of Yisurin Shel Ahava, the suffering 
that is done out of love. Now, the sages talk about this. The sages say that it is possible for innocent people to suffer in life. They have done absolutely nothing wrong, nothing to deserve this kind of suffering. Our sages do acknowledge that that kind of suffering exists, and it's called the uh, afflictions of love. Sometimes God will amplify a person's suffering in this world so as to increase his reward in the next world. This, the Rambam says, is identical to what the Mutazilites teach, which is why it sounded so familiar when we saw it being quoted by the Mutazilites. However, the Rambam says, and this is a very bold statement, the Rambam here is actually taking issue with the sages themselves. There is no basis for this in the Torah to suggest that a completely innocent person will receive suffering in life for absolutely no reason other than God wishes to amplify their reward in the next. Do not be misled by the story of Abraham being tested by God at the Akedah or by what scripture says, that seemingly implies that God afflicted you in order to teach you that man does not live by bread alone and he did it really only because he loves you. I will explain these matters later on in chapter 24 when the Rambam deals more in depth with the Odyssey of why bad things happen to good people, but the Rambam does not believe in this concept of Yisurin Shel Ahava, which is almost, a, you know, it's a, an astonishing statement because our sages emphasize it, and the Rambam says it's not there. Now, as far as recompense even for animals, this was never part of our ancient tradition, even though it is stated by the Mutazilites. One of our latter-day Gaonim heard it from the Mutazilites and adopted this belief. According to Rav Kafich, the Rambam is actually referring to something that appears in Shuvot HaGaonim in a responsa of, uh, that was done um, uh, by rabbis of the Gaonic period who lived before the Rambam, who that one of them believed that it is possible for animals to receive recompense in the afterlife so that if an animal behaves virtuously, um, the animal's soul, so to speak, will receive some kind of eternal reward. The Rambam says that's that's hogwash, that really is not true. There's no such thing as an afterlife or recompense to the soul of an animal. Uh, it, the, the only thing that exists as far as afterlife recompense is for the human species, and that this has to do with the Rambam's view of what the afterlife is. It is a remnant of intellectual presence that we have after we die. Animals have no intellect, and so therefore they can have no afterlife. There is so much more to discuss, uh, but we're going to have to hold it here. And I'm going to want to clarify, I think, some of the ideas that we mentioned today. But we've gone way over time uh, in the hope of just trying to get through the first five different opinions. And when we regroup next week, Bezrat Hashem, we will try and understand the Rambam's modification of this fifth view of the Torah that free will exists unconditionally, that there is suffering and that God is just in doling out that suffering. Um, and at the same time, divine providence has to be quantified and, and properly uh, um, bounded into when divine providence does extend to individual components and when it does not. But clearly the Rambam is of the opinion that the Mutazilites got it wrong in saying that divine providence extends even to the smallest of ants, and certainly there's no afterlife for animals. We'll have to hold it here today, friends. I'm sorry for going so long, and we will continue. Bezrat Hashem, hope to see you next week. Take care, everybody. 
And let me see where I am here. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Um, everyone, uh, be well. We are praying for you all. And Hashem should watch over all of our people. Okay, I'm trying to figure out how I close this. There we go. Have a great day.